want to get into today. You know, we spend most of our time in the church over the years looking at prophecy, wondering when certain prophecies would be fulfilled, uh, when the church would go to a place of safety, and various things like that. We always had somewhat of a view of what's ahead for us. And we'd look, and we'd watch, and we'd read, and we'd watch the news and various things to see if some of those things were beginning to take place. So we were always looking for the fulfillment of prophecy is what I'm coming up to here. And we didn't always look at whether prophecy had been fulfilled or not. And sometimes with prophecy... It's been said many times by various people. You don't see it happening. You look back and see that it did happen. And I think that that has some merit. Now, I think some things have happened with us that we may have only partially realized were happening or didn't fully grasp. So today we're going to take a look back at some of those things, and some of the scripture perhaps that we have been looking forward to seeing happen, and lo and behold, maybe there's been more happen than we realize. The book of Hosea, to start with, is a book that gave us one of our upgrades in understanding, in part, because it's primarily about the, the uh, nation of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim. And we know from Jeremiah 31 that God said that he had changed the birthright order and he had made Ephraim his firstborn. And if you go back to Genesis 49, you'll find that the greatest blessings that were mentioned to the different brothers or tribes uh, went to Ephraim, running over the wall, running over. Uh, double blessings in every way would come upon Ephraim. Now, Herbert Armstrong understood U.S. and British Commonwealth uh, as a booklet that the nations of Western Europe and America were Israel, primarily. And he understood, though, that we were Manasseh and Britain was Ephraim. But I think we've come to see very clearly because of the area we're in and the blessings that are involved and the leadership that Ephraim took after Manasseh and its empire kind of fell apart. Uh, this nation has been the key figure here at the very end in every way as, what else can you say, a world ruling empire. And... The book of Hosea deals with that, talks about how uh, we'd forsaken God, and he said he would destroy our mother. And what I had realized years ago was that all these prophecies have a dual fulfillment. First to the church, they're written first of all, always to the church. And secondarily then to the physical nations of Israel. So you always see... A, or you need to always look for 
a dual fulfillment, one here and then one later for the church, for the uh, nation. And that was one of the first things that I began to realize about prophecy here in the very end time was that we are Ephraim instead of Manasseh. He goes through and he says he'll destroy your mother. I, I went through this in the Minor Prophets series. And the church was destroyed. So there's prophecy fulfilled. Now we're looking at our mother Ephraim, the nation, teetering on the edge of being completely destroyed. So the national fulfillment of these scriptures is just barely behind, uh, or it's ahead of and barely behind being totally fulfilled because it's upon us now. Now we weren't looking at these scriptures through the eyes of the church first in all those years in worldwide. That concept never came out. Now we would apply some scriptures here and there to the church, yes. Saying, well that sounds like the church. But to see that the whole fabric was the church and then followed by the nation was never seen. And as we went through the Minor Prophets series, it caught the attention of people here and there because they could see how these scriptures fit with the church. I mean, look at Revelation 3, which is written specifically to the churches, but when he said, I'll spew you out of my mouth, that's a fulfilled prophecy. We're not waiting for that one to happen. It is done. So there's you an example of a fulfilled prophecy. I think we all recognize that one. That's been pretty clear for quite some time. And everybody was trying to figure out how they were the Philadelphians and everybody else was laying a sin. Uh, we've, we've approached that concept for 25 years now. But he talks in here off and on about Zion and about the ministry and the watchmen of Israel who would be with God, but the other prophets would not be with God, and how the glory would fly away like a bird from the birth. And he tells us in chapter 10 of Hosea that we are to uh, turn to God and he'll rain righteousness upon us. And the remnant that turns to God, he says he will cause his righteousness to come on them at the end of Isaiah 54. So these scriptures all tie together. And he says in verse 14 then, that therefore shall a tumult arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be spoiled, and in a morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off, verse 15. I think that has been fulfilled, and Herbert Armstrong being killed in the early morning hours when he was apparently murdered. I think I can pretty clearly say that. He didn't just die of natural causes, but apparently was smothered to death with a pillow. But he was utterly cut off. So these things have an application, first of all, with the church. In verse chapter 11, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Well, didn't God work with Herbert Armstrong, who was, I think, a minor type of Moses at least, 
and led us out of the false religion and confusion that was in this nation and around the world. He is the one that God introduced the real truths to. Church of God Seventh Day had a little bit, and some all the way back to the pilgrims had a little bit, but they had, for the most part, kind of gotten away from it, didn't follow it, and I think Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventists is mentioned there in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, and she is not mentioned in a good light. She shouldn't have been preaching in the first place, and she did not lead the people into real truth. But Herbert Armstrong led us to a great deal of real truth. And then he was gone. Chapter 13, he says, O Israel, you have destroyed yourself, but in me is your health. Now we as a church, through Laodiceanism, Laodiceanism and so on, pretty well destroyed ourselves and then had to be spewed out. In me is your help. I will be your king. Where is any other that may save you in all your cities? And your judges of whom you said, give me a king and princes, where's the leadership for the church? It's been non-existent. It's just they're wandering in confusion, each group saying we're it. But he says, then I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is hid, and the sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. And there are other places in the prophecies where it talks about the church travailing as a woman trying to give uh, birth and can't get the job done, having trouble with it. He does say in another one or two that it will happen, but it's been difficult. Verse 14, it says, O Israel, return to the eternal your God, for you have fallen by your iniquity. And it was our iniquities and our Laodiceanism that caused us to fall. And no one can save us. Then he says in chapter 14, verse 9, Who is wise, and he shall understand these things? Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the eternal are right, and the just shall walk in them but the transgressors shall fall therein. So he's calling for someone to have understanding, for someone to realize what's going on, uh, because this is all written kind of in code, and unless you understand who's who and what's what, then you just can't get it. The book of Joel is really quite interesting. It is very much an end-time book. And he starts this book following the dissertation about Ephraim, about this nation, and about the church, who is the church is the firstborn, uh, introducing the end time and the palmer worms and the locusts and the cleaning up everything and not leaving anything left alive behind them uh, toward the end time when the day of the Lord is coming. Everything's drying up. 
says in verse 13, Gird yourselves and lament, you priests, how you ministers of the altar, and come, lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, for everything is being withheld. And he says it's a time to fast. Call a solemn assembly and try to figure out what's going on, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And he says in verse 16, Is the meal or the meat cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. And what happened to the church, the house of God? The joy and the gladness was cut off and there was nothing but confusion and frustration and not knowing what's going on and trying to sort it all out. It's been a very, very difficult time. And he goes on and talks about the flame has burned all the trees of the field in the verse 19. Trees symbolize people and they've been cut off and blown and burned up. Chapter 2, he talks about blowing a warning. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord comes, for it is near at hand. So <coughs> there has to be warning given that these events are upon us. Now, if you blow the horn from Zion and his holy mountain, uh, you pretty well need to know where to go to do that from. Uh, there again in Jeremiah 31, it talks about how the watchman will sound an alarm from uh, Zion. Let me turn back there just for a moment. Talks, that's where it talks about the church becoming the firstborn son, or Ephraim as well. But he starts out by saying, <clears throat> those that are left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. And he tells us in Micah 4 to leave the city, stay in Babylon, but go into the wilderness, and there you'll be redeemed, or delivered in Micah, in, uh, Micah 4. And he says in verse 4 here, Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. You yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria, that's Israel. Uh, for there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us go up to Zion, to the Eternal our God. So, he talks about him saving his people, the remnant of Israel, in the verse 7, and how he will gather them, and how he'll be a father, in verse 9, to them, and how Ephraim is his firstborn. Verse 12, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. And he talks about the blessings and the virgins dancing and so on. Uh, verse 17, There is hope in your end, says the Eternal, that your children shall come again to their own border. They'll be brought back into the promised land. Now going back to Joel, uh, he says, the armies are coming through chapter 2. Verse 12, Therefore also now says the Eternal, Turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rim your heart and not your garments, and turn to the Eternal your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and relents him of the evil, and that he might turn and repent. 
says again in 15, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, and gather the people. Forget about the normal things in life like marriage and children and so on. And verse 17, Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and say, Spare your people. Give not your heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Now, here again, we're speaking first of the church and then ultimately of the nation, but the heathen will rule over the nation. They're going to. But God is not going to let them rule over the church any longer. Now, the heathen took over, yes, uh, with the Tkachbach, and they ruled the church for a while, and then they were deposed, and then we had complete confusion as that fell apart. And he says he'll remove from us, verse 20, the northern army will drive into a land barren and desolate, and so on. And I think that that happened pretty much with the church. Uh, I've said several times, and I think I'll repeat it here. I think you've probably all heard this by now, some of the background that got us to where we are today. And I had made an appointment to talk to Mr. Armstrong in 1981. And he got to talking there about how he was Zerubbabel and how he had been uh, commissioned to build a church. He was referring to Zechariah 4, 3 and 4, and to Haggai as well, although he didn't have a full understanding of it. But as he talked, I thought, well, that makes sense. And maybe Garner Ted is the Joshua there who was with filthy garments and so on. And it pretty well fit, and I do feel that those two were a minor fulfillment of those prophecies. I have no doubt of that. But in that conversation, it never did get around to what I made the appointment to talk about, actually. But my wife was there, and Joe Cox was there. And Mr. Armstrong had very much on his mind in 1981 who would be his successor. Uh, and whatever he had on his mind was generally what got talked about, and just the way he was. You could bring up something, and he, like he didn't even hear it, because his mind tended to get focused on something. You know about the two trees, and that focus went on for years. Uh, don't know that he ever fully understood it, but he, he was on it. Now, in that conversation then, he started talking about his successor. And he started naming names of all the different evangelists, and he'd, he'd name one and say, well, he can't do it. And he'd name another one and say, he can't do it. He'd been sorting through this, obviously, in his mind a lot. And he had, couldn't come up with an answer. And he mentioned Joe DeCotch, who was sitting there, and said, he can't do it. Said that very clearly. <clears throat> and then he started talking a little bit about trouble in the church. Because he had recognized, even though he was still defending Stan Rader, he was, uh, he was aware that Stan was not what he ought to be, put it that way. Because he defended him some even after this conversation that I'm going to tell you about. 
Um, but I said, Mr. Armstrong, we have trouble in the church. And I said, there in Thessalonians it talks about how the man of sin will stand in the church of God and proclaim that he is God. Man, his head snapped right up, and he immediately said, maybe that's Stan Rader. Stan Rader wasn't in the room, and Stan Rader wasn't around to do that later. But Joe DeCotch was in the room, and Joe DeCotch heard it very clearly. And Mr. Armstrong talked about it for a bit. That uh, yes, indeed, that would be in the church. Well, it's also going to be a man of sin in the world. So there's your first clue, in a way, that Paul's saying he'll stand in the church means that that's a different one than he who will stand and rule the whole world. Now, in one sense, you might apply the one who's the world ruler later back to the church because there's going to come a point where he defiles the temple and does stand in the temple of God. But the church itself will depart ahead of that, barely, and not be there when he takes over the physical planet. Probably the gold, the silver, the temple treasures, everything will be left to the beast until Christ returns shortly thereafter. So I went home and preached a sermon about Zechariah and about what Mr. Armstrong had said. I, I think I still have the tape somewhere uh, from 1981 because I saved it. That was kind of important to me. So now, let's read on down here a little bit. He says he'll remove the Assyrian. Well, he removed the Tkachis. That's where I was headed with that. Uh, Joe, Joe made some statement about uh, if I do such and such, may God strike me dead, I forget. George, you know that quote pretty well. Or, uh, or you've said it to me, I don't remember. But he made some statement and he was dead shortly thereafter. And then the church uh, fell apart completely. It was already falling apart, but then it just completely came apart. But he says in verse 21 here, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. Out of all this trouble will come great things. Okay? Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Now you go to Haggai 2, and there's a question asked there, have these vines and trees produced? And the answer at that point is no, they have not. But from that date, 924, they would. So, I kept looking at 924 year after year, wondering, is this the year? And then I realized more recently that that particular blessing pronounced there is for the building of the temple itself. It's not overall for the church and the gathering of the remnant. It's about building the temple. 
It's in the context only of building the temple. So what confused me was that it talks about a blessing then, it talks about blessings in the first month, it talks about blessings afterward. So there's several different places God mentions different times for blessings. So it couldn't all be talking about the same time. And I, I would kind of go from one of those to the next to the next, wondering, is this it? Is this it? Is this when the blessing starts? What did he mean? I think I finally come to realize that each of those has to happen in its context, at its time, in its place. And 9.24 isn't something that just happens every year. It happens after the remnant comes, after the two witnesses are in place, and the blessing for building the temple comes, because that's what it's all about. So that one we don't need to watch for until indeed the leadership shows up and the remnant shows up, and preparations start being made for the temple. Then you watch that date, because it's important to the building of the temple only, and the blessings that need to be for that. But here he's saying uh, that there'll be blessings. Uh, it's a different, it's a different time. It's speaking of here. It's not 9:24. The trees of 9:24 have not yet produced as of today because the remnant hasn't yet come and the temple building is not quite apparent. So this is talking about something different. It says in verse 3, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the eternal your God. So this is talking to children of Zion, which could mean the church overall, but it could be mean also those who have come to Zion to worship their God. Rejoice in the eternal your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, or my margin says in the Hebrew it's better rendered according to righteousness. He has given you the former rain according to righteousness. Now that's past tense, isn't it? He has given you. Now, moderately, or according to righteousness. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. So here he's talking about a specific time of the year when you've already had the former rain, but then he's going to give you the former and the latter rain. Now, how does that fit with church history? I've been looking for years for some major things to happen in the first month. Year after year. Is this the year? Is this the year? The first month's here? Is this going to be the year when this, 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 and this happens? And we receive all this rain, all these blessings. Well, now, physical blessings are wonderful, spiritual blessings are even more wonderful and more important. And oftentimes in the Bible, God uses the physical as a type of or a picture of the spiritual. I think that should be obvious to all of us as we read through. But some of those 
are going to be both spiritual blessings followed by or accompanied by physical blessing as well. And I think we can apply both to the church here in the end time, that both kinds of those things are going to happen. Then he goes on down and talks about how afterward, in verse 28, he'll pour out his spirit and there'll be visions and dreams and so on. And that sounds like Pentecost, like what kind of what happened on Pentecost. Not exactly, because it was the apostles who did most of the speaking, but others spoke in tongues. So there was a, there was a mighty uh, showing of God's Spirit there on Pentecost when the church began. And that's kind of the way I thought, well, maybe in the first month, April, Days of Unleavened Bread, God will pour out these rains, and all kinds of things happen. And then later, he pours out his spirit in great measure, maybe at Pentecost, 50 days later. That's kind of the way I pictured it. Notice if you read on down, I may come back to this, but the last verse of that chapter says at the end of the verse, As the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the eternal shall call. So this draws it down specifically to the remnant of the church that God is going to call that this is talking about. No. Let's go back a bit to a timeline. In Luke 4, Christ did say there that he was announcing 27 A.D., the, or, yeah, uh, 27 A.D., the uh, acceptable day of, acceptable year of the eternal. And the one that is the acceptable one is the Jubilee year. It's the most acceptable year there is to God, and that's the one that uh, announces the millennium later on here. So that's his acceptable time. And people have questioned, People who were church members grew up in the church. They've questioned whether it was really the true church or not. They've questioned if maybe a lot of Protestants will be of the first resurrection and all that kind of thing, because this wasn't the true church. Uh, they saw things happening in worldwide that weren't good uh, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, there were a lot of things that... We're out of order, no doubt about it. So they began to question whether it was a church. But let's look at prophecy as I believe it has been fulfilled, okay? Christ made that statement in 27 A.D., uh, probably as the Day of Atonement, because he was announcing the acceptable year, and the Jubilee was always announced on atonement. Now, his preparation for his ministry was in 26 and 27 A.D. 1900 years later, to the year, God began to call Herbert Armstrong, 1926-27 A.D. Now, 27 A.D., he had a pretty good grasp of some of the fundamentals of the Bible, the Sabbath, and uh, various things that he had learned that we later learned about. 
So he began small in 26 and 27, and it began to build a little bit, and then the broadcast and the plain truth in 31, just four years later. Uh, these things happened, and a work grew that became worldwide, as Ezekiel 16, uh, or 17 it is, uh, point out, but it became a low-growing thing, and its roots went to him. And he became the personality uh, of the church. And then God talks there in Ezekiel 17 about how it would come apart and he would be replaced and that those who replaced him would not stick to the agreement they had made with him and then how it will be destroyed and that God will start anew with a green twig. And it's a perfect description of what happened to Worldwide. Well, Herbert Armstrong began exactly 1900 years after Christ made that pronouncement, which means God began working with him in the year prior to and the Jubilee year. The preparation year, the 49th year, 7th year Sabbath, and then the Jubilee is when he began working with Herbert Armstrong. 1900 years later. Well, God gave us 6,000 years to be here, and then Christ will come and take rule for a 1,000 years. So he gave us 6,000 years, and Peter points out to us that he is not slack concerning his promise, and he points out specifically <clears throat> that a day is as a 1,000 years. So what Christ was saying and when he said it was this was the beginning of the fifth year. There have been 4,000 years before, and that was the beginning of the fifth year, because we are at the end now. So it couldn't have been the third or the fourth thousand years. It had to have been the beginning of the fifth thousand years, because we went through it to uh, the Middle Ages, and now here we are at the end of the sixth thousand years, or the sixth day. The week is a perfect example of it. Here we are, end of the sixth day, we're here on the Sabbath today, the seventh day. The millennium is represented by the Sabbath, as Hebrews 4 points out very, very clearly. So, he started Herbert Armstrong up in the sabbatical year, followed by the Jubilee year, 1927. So, according to that, you can figure that if that was 1,900 years, two jubilees later would be 2,000 years. That puts you at a preparation year in 26 and a jubilee year in 2027. The numbers fit perfectly. Now, Herbert Armstrong's work flourished, and it lasted about 70 years. The early New Testament church lasted about the same amount of time. God used 70 years. The church back in Christ's day was in the captivity of Rome, and they had to answer to Rome. In the end time 70 years, we're in the captivity of Babylon, 
and we've had to answer to Babylon. Herbert Armstrong even incorporated the church, which means that you're turning your uh, rule over to the corporation, which is owned by the government. If he had remained a free church, the state of California could not have come in and taken it over. But since it was a corporation, they had every right, if they thought the corporation was being mismanaged, to come in and take over, which is what they did. Couldn't have done it had it remained a free church, or at least not legally. They couldn't do it in Waco either, but they, sometimes they do things illegally and they just kill every man, woman, and child. Allegedly, they were after David Koresh, but he went out jogging every day and he went downtown regularly. All they had to do was grab him when he was out jogging in the morning and got rid of David Koresh, and that had been the end of that. But they wanted to make an example, so they killed everybody. That's what our government is quite capable of doing and has done and continues to do and are threatening now to kill everyone who supported Donald Trump. Uh, I just read a quote from Kamala Harris back in uh, June where she says, we're going to come after every one of you supporters of Donald Trump and we're going to get you. I'm, I'm boiling it down. It was a long paragraph, but that was, the, that was the point she was making. You can't hide. We're coming after you. So, even as the early New Testament church lived for 70 years under Rome and disappeared, so Herbert Armstrong's work went about 70 years and disappeared. Gone. Now what? From 1926 to 1996 is 70 years. And by then it was pretty well gone. Everybody was in total confusion. Look at this again here. Be glad, children of Zion, and rejoice in the eternal, for he has given you the former reign according to righteousness. Now, he gave a former reign to Herbert Armstrong. Now, I'm to a degree speculating here, but I want us to consider some things. We've seen, I think, pretty clearly in Haggai that he makes a division between the former temple and the latter temple. And the former temple could only be worldwide as it was. And when it was destroyed, he says the latter temple will come. He mentions Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant. So it's the two witnesses and the faithful remnant that he calls the 10% that Haggai is talking about. He wasn't talking about Herbert Armstrong. Now, he may have been a minor or former fulfillment. But I think according to what Joel is saying here, he also was former in terms of how much he understood. There are a lot of things he never understood. But he was given a great deal. And it was true knowledge from God, most of it. Okay? Things that we still have. And I think that is included in here when you read this. He gave Herbert Armstrong the former reign, either moderately or according to righteousness, and the church 
had a certain level of righteousness, but it never did attain to what God wanted it to be. And therefore, he spewed it out. So that former reign was, let's say, limited. We had the holy days. We had the Sabbath. We had uh, the purpose of mankind to become God. We had, oh, you could start naming, I think Jerry Fleury came up with 19 things that Herbert Armstrong restored. 19 isn't, it's a lot, but it's not everything by any means that's in this book that was restored. So, he had the former reign. Now, notice how this is worded. He has given you already the former reign under the former church. Even Haggai makes it clear that the former church was not Herod's temple or something, because there'd be old men who would see the former temple and the latter temple and be able to compare the two. So they all happen in the lifetime of people here at the end time. And it's clearly an end time thing, not way back in history, because he says there at the end of Haggai that he'll make Zerubbabel a signet to the world, his flag, his banner, and he'll shake the heavens and the earth. And that's not happened yet. So Haggai is talking about the end time. And the former church is Herbert Armstrong, who was, as a builder of the church or of the temple, uh, a minor fulfillment. And not only did he build the spiritual temple, he also built a building that was a magnificent structure, a physical temple, if you will. He didn't call it temple, he called it house of God. And indeed, that's what Ezra called it back then. So he had a certain amount of true knowledge, enough to build a former temple. Then it says, he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Now, has God retained the knowledge that came under Herbert Armstrong, which was the former rain? Part of it has. Those who followed the Tagaches went way off into Protestantism, and they did not retain the former reign. He said, I've given it to you, and then I'm going to give you the former and the latter. I'm going to give back to you what you had, plus more, much more. The former reign in measure, according to righteousness, which was limited, and then the latter in more abundance. So he speaks partly past tense, and then what he's going to do for those who survive. Now, a lot of people, a lot of ministers who left the church, gave up a lot of the knowledge that they'd received from Herbert Armstrong. They lost it. A few retained it. And some of the major ones retained most of it. So the former reign was, in that sense, preserved or re-given if you will, because the Koshes did away with it. And then it had to be re-preached, had to be retrieved, had to be given again. Say, no, you don't go that way. This is the way. Keep the Sabbath. Keep the holy days. Keep the things you learned. 
Okay? And then he would give you the latter rain in the first month, and the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. <clears throat> and the years that the locust and the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm took from you, I'll give back. So the church came apart and was just eaten up. But he says, I'm going to put it back together. And at the end of this chapter, he says, through the remnant. That's how it will come to happen. Now consider this. In 1996, well, a little, a little glimpse of it, maybe in 94, but nothing like understanding it. Uh, in 94, I woke up and had, I don't know whether it was a dream or a vision, it was kind of both in Beaverdam, Arizona, where I was working at the time. And it said, I want you to build a, a repair, a place for my people near here. And I was mystified and overcome and what in the world? Me? You talking to me? What do you mean? Because I didn't think that I could do any such thing like that. What do you mean? Uh, but I said, well, okay. But that was all the information that was given. It's just near here. And as I've said before, I had come up to Zion sometimes on the weekend just because it was a beautiful place in the creation of God. So I'd spend the Sabbath here. I didn't go to Anaheim, where Church of the Great God was. And uh, it never occurred to me that this could be a very important place. It was just a beautiful place. It had a name of God on it, but I didn't connect that in any way. I wasn't that bright, wasn't that tuned in. And I looked around to see what's near here that could be prepared, and I couldn't find anything, and, and was broke and couldn't buy anything. And I'm wondering, what's this all about? So uh, I tucked it away in the back of my mind, and the business that we were in there was being done in the wrong way at the wrong time in the wrong place, and it failed. So I went back to Alaska and uh, got back with my family. And kind of put it in the background, back burner, because I didn't know what to do with it. Well, that summer, John Reichenbaugh and John Reed came up to visit us in Alaska, and I had no idea what was going on. Um, he didn't, John Reichenbaugh wouldn't stay in one place very long, but they stayed almost a week, as I recall, and we took him around and showed him things, and he saw our big log home and on the lake and all the stuff that our life consisted of and how we loved it there, okay? He saw all that. Well, he had put me on the board of directors of Church of Great God before that, and uh, got to the feast that fall, and... That was in 95, and uh, had a board meeting before the feast. And he began to go on and on, oh, woe is me. Um, I don't have enough help in the office, and there's more work than we can get done, and I need help so badly, and I sure wish I had some help, and he went on and on and on. And I'm sitting there feeling guilty because I'm in a big log house on a lake in Alaska. And I finally stuck my hand up and said, well, maybe I could help if I could be of help, I'm available. 
So he took Marlon and I to lunch, and, and uh, he hired me uh, during the Feast of 95. Well, we went back to Alaska after the Feast, and we didn't set a time when I would be in Charlotte to go to work. So for some reason, I just felt like I needed to be there on the 1st of January to report to work 1st of January. So I packed up a pickup and a trailer and headed down the Alcan and made it to Charlotte a few days before the 1st and was got settled. And then on the 1st of January, I showed up for work at the office, which had been my goal. I don't know why, it just that's when I wanted to be there. Well, about two weeks later, I don't know the, the day exactly, January, first month of the Gregorian calendar, and we've debated as time has gone on, there's so many things that have happened for good and bad in January in the church in this age, just all kinds of things. Good and bad, you know, like the broadcast began, the plain truth had begun in January, uh, and then on the bad side, the state of California took over in January. Uh, there's lots of good and bad, but January was a very significant month throughout Herbert Armstrong's ministry. So, he died on the 16th of January, and I don't know when this dream came, but it was just about then could have been the 13th, the 17th, right in that neighborhood, and it could have been the 16th. I don't know that. Um, in a way, I'd like to think it was, because that's the day he died. But anyway, it was uh, 70 years later, after he had been taught. And the church had fallen apart, was going nowhere, and everyone was in utter confusion about what does the future hold. Everybody claiming to be Philadelphian, and everybody was Laodicean except them. That was the basic approach that most had. Well, that dream was about Haggai and Zechariah, the thing that I had talked to Mr. Armstrong about in 1981. And I think God had used that thing in 1981 as a warning to Herbert Armstrong. Why was I there to talk about something else entirely? And that's what came out. I think it was a warning mainly to go to Tkach, not to stand in the temple of God as if he was God and change doctrines and do his thing. But that's what he did after having been warned. Now, who am I? I'm nobody, so why would he take warning from me? Except that Herbert Armstrong picked it up and says, yes, that man will stand in the church. That's what Paul said. And his immediate take was it'd be Stan Rader, but that didn't turn out to be the case. It was someone else, the man who was sitting there in the room. Now, what came in that dream in January, middle of January, 1996, preparation year, 49th year, uh, was an understanding of the former and the latter temple of how the two witnesses would show up and what would be. So we began a very, very intense study. I told several people, including John Reitenbaugh, about it 
And we began to look into that very, very thoroughly to see if this could be meaningful, because it was in technicolor. It was very clear. It wasn't like most of my dreams, which are muddy and whatever. But this was so very clear. And we began to understand some of these prophecies. Well, that was the first month of the Gregorian year. Now, I'd begun to speak on this in February. I spoke every once a month, first week of the month. So I'd given a sermon about it on first week of February, first Sabbath. And a couple, one or two after February, March, two, maybe two after that. But I'd gone back to Alaska to start getting things ready to move, Marlon and the family and all the stuff down. And John asked me to go to Chicago for Passover season. So Marlon and I flew to Chicago to be there. And, of course, we have the understanding that the church has, or had, that Passover came, and then you had a free day in there to have your donuts, and then a night to be much remembered after, and seven more days. Well, the first clue came there, because we'd had the Passover, and I had a sermon to give on the nationwide the next day, which was supposedly the Sabbath, the first day of unleavened bread. But I was preparing it on the donut day, after Passover, before the so-called night to be much observed. And as I was working on it, I kind of got drowsy and uh, fell off to sleep. And then during the deep sleep, I uh, wasn't waking up, wasn't awake. Uh, I would call it nothing but a vision of these two maps. One was of the Middle East and one was of basically Utah. And it began to fill in. Sea of Galilee up here, Big Bear Lake on the Idaho border up here, uh, Zion, Petra, Moab, Jordan over there, city of Moab, Utah over here, it's the only place on earth named Moab, showed up as Moab. Uh, <coughs> the Jordan Rift Valley, which contains Petra on the Jordanian-Israeli border, and here the mountains coming down the middle of Utah, and then Sodom and Gomorrah there by the Dead Sea there, and Sodom and Gomorrah, L.A. and Las Vegas down here. Uh, you have the Gulf of California here, and the uh, Red Sea up there, or, or the Gulf of, uh, well, name escapes me, uh, which comes right there at the end of Israel. Uh, so it was like the two were the same, an exact copy of each other. And then it was gone. Now that was in the first month on Passover Day, even though I didn't realize it was Passover Day, in the first month in 1996, which was the sabbatical year before Jubilee in 97 because we've got one more jubilee to come now in 2027. So, boy, did that give us some feverish activity. To think that 
could it really be that the promised land is over here? Could it be that this is the Zion that is the real Zion? Could it be that this is the land of Ephraim? Could it be that nothing in the Middle East fits the Bible? And we looked at all kinds of scriptures and none of it fit the Bible. So the promised land, Deuteronomy 8, 7 and 8, will have lots of water. It'll have iron and gold that you can, or iron and brass that you can dig out of the mountains. It'll have, in other places, gold and silver. It'll have everything you need. And you look at the Middle East, and they have no gold and silver. They have no iron. They have no brass. They have no minerals there whatsoever except a few things that are dissolved in the Dead Sea. And here you have the Dead Sea, the Salton Sea, uh, Bonneville Flats that came all the way down through Nevada, and Little Salt Sea up here by where Jerusalem was, is, nearby. All that came in the first month of 96. We have had, since January of 96 and April of 96, an outpouring of understanding and knowledge that is unprecedented. All things have to be restored here at the end. Herbert Armstrong restored some. A few, really, when you get down to it. But it was a former rain, a more moderate rain. Then he says, I'm going to open it and give you the latter rain. What time is it? I'm about to run out. What did we learn there? Well, we learned... Not only the spiritual temple had to be built, but the physical temple had to be built. Herbert Armstrong had done both in a more minor way. But people say, well, that's just, we're, that's only talking about a spiritual temple. And my counter on that has always been, it says there in Haggai that people will say, it's not time to build a temple. It's not time to build a temple. We're here at the end time. This isn't time to do it. The worldwide always thought the Jews would do it. Christ disfellowship the Jews, remember? Then I'll have nothing more to do with you until you accept those that I sent, the apostles, and those who come after them. And they've never done it yet. So, Haggai says they'll say it's not time to build a temple. Do you know a church member, former worldwide, anywhere that will say we should not build a spiritual temple. You couldn't, you couldn't find one. Everybody knows that our body is the temple of the Spirit and we're supposed to build a physical temple, or I mean a spiritual temple within ourselves, and that the spiritual temple is, in a larger sense, the church, and that the church had to be built. And even with the two witnesses and the remnant, although you don't understand that, uh, they would say it's just a spiritual temple. We've got to have a spiritual temple. That's all that matters here at the end. But Haggai says they'll say it's not time to build temple. The physical temple is what they're talking about. Because a lot of them would say, oh, we don't need to build that. Or the Jews will do that. No, that doesn't work through the Jews anymore. If the Jews build a temple, it's the Jews' temple. It's not God's temple. Only his people can build his temple. 
And he says, Rubbelbell's hands began it, I think spiritually, the church, and they will finish it, speaking of the physical temple. And then that the beast and the false prophet will take that over at some point and defile it, and it's time to flee. Now, we understood that worldwide, didn't we? Matthew 24, where we were to flee when what Daniel said happened in the temple. And we thought we were going to Petra. Now, there's something that was restored that wasn't right. The Protestants had an idea that Petra was an important place. I went there. It didn't look important to me. I didn't want to move there. If God had said, I'm going to give you Petra, I'd have said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) When I got off the plane in Tel Aviv and began to look around in the Middle East and drove from one end to the other and back and forth across it for several days, I thought, if this is the promised land, I'll pass. It's a miserable place. It has very little water, contrary to Deuteronomy. It has no silver and gold. It has no iron that you can dig out of the hills. Iron Mountain is right up here, just west of Peter City. They've been digging iron out of it for a long time. And copper, brass. It's here. It's all here. This nation has water virtually everywhere except a little <coughs> a little less than a few desert spots in the southwest. But God wanted this waste area to be turned into a rose. I said before, if he wanted us to have something nice to start with, he'd have given us the Willamette Valley. Or he'd have given us, you know, one of these places, Jackson Hole. Oh, man, if he gave me that, I'm in on this one. That's not what he gave us. He gave us kind of a waste howling desert. A wilderness area. I'm going to get into this. I guess probably tomorrow. I didn't think by any means I could get it all done today, but I'm introducing it. Of the absolute amazing amount of knowledge that God has given us here from 96 on. And it has increased one thing after another, after another, after another, understanding about things that the church never got, never understood, and about prophecy. I mean, just what we've already covered today. Where is the promised land? Nobody on earth basically understands that but us. Few Mormons think this is it, but they don't know who God is, so... Uh, that's a whole different deal. Where is Zion, the true Zion? How you get, if you show up at Peter, you're in trouble. God's not going to protect that place. But this nation is the promised land and where Israel originated. And we've seen Paleo-Hebrew all over the Southwest. And the Ten Commandments written in ancient Hebrew on the rocks there at Las Lunas, New Mexico. And it's just all over the Southwest. They found at least 300 or 350 places where 
the Hebrew alphabet is inscribed on rocks north of the Grand Canyon in South of here, or in this area. It's all over the place. And that's not church people, that's archaeologists that found those. And all across the nation. But the Smithsonian has hid it and hid it and hid it because they didn't want to admit that Israel was here. So just a couple of basic major things. And not long after that, we learned that Jerusalem, the ancient city of Jerusalem, is here. I didn't see that in those two maps. Why? That's an important part. Because God had already showed it to somebody else who came to us to show us where it was. He already had that covered. It was beautiful. And you know that history. Maybe we forget details, but we know that, and that's one reason we're here. But just as an overall closing thought, maybe the latter rains already came in the first month of the Gregorian calendar and started again in the on Passover in the first month in 96, and they've continued to come out ever since. More and more things that we have learned from the book that are irrefutable. They're just there. We'll get into some of that tomorrow. And maybe we're looking at fulfilled prophecy instead of wondering when it's going to happen. We need to say, wow, we've already gotten this and this and this and this. What are you expecting? Now, maybe there'll be some physical follow-up on some of those things. I think there will, as an example to the world. But maybe we need to look at it and say, God has already blessed us in ways that we didn't even realize, and we ought to be really truly thankful for the blessings that have come. So we'll pick it up there tomorrow, then, God willing.